you either accept there is nobody out there or there is somebody out there and he's horrible or Jesus. <laughs> Those are your choices. Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors are exploring the gospel, what it means, what it means to, uh, what, how it applies. Yeah. And we were talking about worldviews last week uh, in our series called FTW, right. Faith That Works. For the uh, win. For the win. Faith That Works, guys. Yes. Faith That Works. Right. And we uh, said last week, everybody's got a worldview, and this week, we're going to continue to expand on this notion of a worldview. Yeah. Uh, the Theory of Everything is the name of today's episode. Yeah. Good why, why did you name it that, Nathan? Well, because what religious people call uh, faith, I, I think that the rest of the world would call a theory, um, a paradigm. And so while, say, an atheist would say they don't have a faith, it would be difficult to say that they don't have a paradigm, um, that there's not there aren't assumptions that that they direct their life by, that their aspirations are built around um, a, a set of values. And um, the problem is, is that if we say, well, there's uh, faith is, is something that's invalid, it's based on unprovable propositions, but this particular paradigm is, is based on empirical evidence, um, there's really no fair way of, of comparing we just simply say there's a set of people in the world who, at least skeptics, atheists would say, there are a set of people in the world who believe things that are unprovable. Teapot orbiting the earth, unicorns, it flying spaghetti monster, God, Jesus. They all fall into the same bucket of fanciful, unprovable ideas. And then on the other side, you have things like Western liberal values and the dignity of the individual and all of that, that is obviously true. Um, and yet based on what? Um, and, and so the notion well, the that the founders said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? Right. And, and they capitalized them and they built statues to them. Oh, sons of the enlightenment. Yes. Um, and if that's not, um, just crafting a new religion, uh, so we believe that God is self-existent, that we don't have to account for where he came from. If you decide, well, there's no God, there's just truth, justice in the American way, and, and you capitalize them on, you, and you personify them, and you build a statue to them, uh, you've just created another religion um, with no more basis for proof than anybody else's. Um, or at least in my opinion, and I would be open to debate on that. I just haven't found anybody who can provide a solid intellectual basis for some of these self-evident values. Um, you can't just declare something self-evident uh, unless you somehow are able to create some sort of syllogism that self-evident truths exist. Uh, so, I don't know. Has anybody ever tried to do that? I mean, some of the arguments for the existence of God, um, Alvin Plantinga, some of those, the, some of those philosophers have argued that belief in God is properly basic. That that uh, that that, and I think Paul seems to be saying in Romans one that the existence of God is self-evident. Okay, help me out there. In Romans one, well, I I think that like his divine say, nature is self-evident. I think that's more or less what he says in Romans one. Sure. Um, 
maybe I, I would say, I wouldn't say it was self-evident just because he then gives the evidences. Um, if we were able to consider in a vacuum, in a, in a say like Descartes, uh, and, and Descartes goes to say, um, maybe nothing that I see exists and it's all a dream and um, it's possible that this dream was constructed by an evil demon or whatever. You know, he, he tries to pull back and, and to ask, is there a, a rational intellectual basis for God? So whereas Paul would say, you look up at the night sky, you look at the things around you, you have an interaction with another human being. And I, and I think all of us have a, have a primal tendency uh, to want to posit that there's somebody behind this. Yeah. And, 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 but that may not be true. I think from a skeptical standpoint, you could say, well, that's just our tendency to anthropomorphize our experience that, you know, someone heard thunder and they suppose that there was a God up there, you know, bashing on an anvil or that there was somebody slinging lightning bolts that, that there, we tend to personify phenomena. And so to personify our very existence is not, it's not too much of a reach to say we created that. But from Paul's, you know, Paul's worldview, he would say his choices were when we look at creation, do we see um, the gods killing their parents and crafting them into the earth that we stand on? Or do we see a being who is not of this creation? That somebody, if that the one who created it must be higher and different from that which he created. So for Paul, the debate was, you know, are all of these gods and these images, are they the essence of what God is? So I, Romans 1 and Acts 17 kind of are companion chapters as Paul is, is speaking to a Greco-Roman world in both cases. And in, in Acts 17, he's like, why would we think that the creator of all things is like plants or birds or fish or, you know, any of these things? Why would we think that the creator is like his creation in essence? So for him, the reasonable thing would be to say, look, not only is the, do we look around and we see people and we see all these other things, but we look to the sky and we see these fixed entities or whatever that, that seem to transcend us that for generations have been there. Why would we assume that the creator of such things is as, as finite and petty and you know, small as we are, like mm -hmm. the gods of the Greco-Roman world? And so for him, the argument was easy in that he was saying, look, if you see what is the grandeur of creation and then you assume that somebody somewhat more powerful, but essentially just like you did it, isn't that foolish? Um, and, and if you think you can produce their image in a way that's faithful, that's ridiculous that, that you are small and finite. You should just know that by looking up at the sky at night. Yeah. So how do we get, get from there? If we've got, you know, kind of a base sentiment that most people throughout history have had towards, you know, looking at creation and seeing mm -hmm. there must be some kind of divine causation or something. How do we get from there into the the gospel worldview or the you know the inherently Christian worldview that kind of brings us together, you know, defines our faith and gives us mm -hmm. you know kind of the the basis for what we're talking about? Yeah, 
I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm off the notes, dude. (laughs) What I've generally uh, said to people, because uh, let me ask you this question. Um, So there's a tribesman um, in Papua New Guinea who has never seen a white man and and, uh, is going to live and die and never have encountered the gospel. What happens to him at the end of days, let's say? If, if we assume that, that there's a judgment day and that there's an eternal destiny for everyone on the planet, uh, where will he go and why? Let's, let's start with that. Because, mm. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that this is pertinent. This is germane. If, if we're going to say that the Christian worldview is big enough, um, we, it, it's, in, it's problematic if we say um, that those who have not heard the gospel are going to hell, however we conceive that, or face judgment in whatever way, is problematic uh, for us because then that assumes that um, all of these other cultures and all these other thoughts and these people are all invalid until they encounter us. Uh, and, and so that, that begins to kind of undermine the value of the gospel if we say, well, just this, you know, in this one little compass point, this tiny little town and this small group of people uh, so far into the human experiment um, it have somehow discovered the truth. And that this amazing God who lives in the heavens and knows everybody and can count the hairs on everyone's head is waiting for humans to somehow bring this message around the world and is going to send everybody to hell or destroy them or whatever who doesn't get the message yet. Well, it argues pretty strongly against it. Uh, I'm not saying it, it is the nail in the coffin. I mean, God's certainly free to do that if he wants to, if he is sovereign, as, as the Christian worldview would say. Um, but if, if this worldview is so important, why has it been so rare? Um, so I, I guess it gets back to whether or not God is self-evident, whether or not... Paul was right that people should be able to understand this. Um, if nobody and to respond to God on the basis of His self-revelation in right. creation, right? So. And that that serves as sufficient accountability. Right. His self-revelation in creation as is sufficient accountability uh, is sufficient to hold all humans of all cultures and all times accountable for their for their response to to what they knew of him yeah or at least to be angered in some way or um somehow incensed at a false characterization of him it it seems that paul is saying that god doesn't cotton to being lampooned (laughs) and and people may not mean to do that but when we tend to present him in a way that is not faithful to him that somehow cheapens his um his sense of his worth his with the weightiness of what and who he is then there's there's that this is offensive to god that's that would be paul's contention in romans 1 18 he kind of leads with the wrath of god is manifest in the world um so what is it is it possible for somebody who's not heard the gospel to live in a way that's pleasing to God, to somehow discover God. What would they need to discover about God? How would they need to approach God in a way that wouldn't displease him? 
maybe that I'm opening a can mm. of worms here. <laughs> well, it, se- it seems to me that if a person um, responded to the basic um, attributes of God revealed in creation, and if they c- prayed to him mm. that he would accept them in their failings mm-hmm. and uh, and provide for them and meet their needs, and they put their trust in him as best they knew how, that he would accept them. Okay. Are they going to be saved without the blood of Christ? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Alex, what do you think? <laughs> You're on the spot. It's the hot seat, man. Come on. That's why there are three of us here, so we can fight about this. Let's fight. I, I feel like we're going off, off script. We are, because our script is too short, and we should just, we're just, man, we're spitballing. Let's do this. Let's yeah. do this together. Oh, gosh. Now, oh, now when I say I don't think so, what I mean is, you know, whether or not they heard the gospel in their life right. is, is not, is it potential, possibly not necessary. Okay. Um, and I know that's a, that's a, uh, there's a can of worms there. And, right. but I would I'm, I'm saying, I think he can accept them on the, on account of the blood of Christ, even the, the blood of Christ they've never heard of. Okay. Are is you what I'm getting saying at. that because that's how you want the world to be? Or uh, yeah, I think that's, yeah, maybe that's how I want the world to be, or that's how I'm making sense of the situation. Now, I'm not sure that there are people who respond in faith because mm-hmm. it has to do with your view of human nature, sin nature. Are there actually any people who do put their trust in the God of creation mm-hmm. um, it, apart from the work of the Spirit through the gospel is a question worth yeah. asking. Mm-hmm. But if there are, then they can be accepted by God. And the blood of Christ can cover their sins. Uh, and it seems to say that in Romans 3, um, and we can talk about that verse um, to me, it may mean that in, mm-hmm. in, in Romans 3, where he passed over sins formerly committed. So that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if people know about the God of the Bible or... I mean, I'm, I'm just responding yeah. to what, what you're saying here. It doesn't matter if people know about the God of the Bible or the, the gospel message, mm-hmm. as long as they see and recognize that there is a creator and somehow put their faith in them then they are forgiven well yeah i mean i i think if we do say that apart from hearing the gospel people can be forgiven uh, i don't think that means that it doesn't matter whether they hear the gospel um that the gospel is more than um you know and, and we all agree here it's more than eternal life insurance or getting your ticket punched for heaven that that the gospel is a whole uh, a, you know, it, it's good news for now as well that, uh, I, it, at least in my understanding of Scripture and my kind of predisposition here, would be that the same people who would have what has been called natural religion, that you look up at the heavens and you assume that whoever's responsible for this is bigger than you are, it transcends you somehow. And, um, that you experience life as a mix of, of joy and pain. You see nobility and goodness, and you see evil, and, and you grieve over the evil, and you long for the goodness, and, and you figure whoever's behind it must have at least programmed us to understand what's good. And, and so I, I think there's a lot of natural assumptions that even a very a simple person could, you know, without a whole lot of learning or letters, could know. Um, that person, I think, could be forgiven. But I think that person, when they encounter the gospel, are going to be 
enraptured by finally having feet on it <laughs> by finally by this this set of of uh, suspicions that they have finally being given a name so it's like they they've had an inkling of a, some type of some type of worldview is mm-hmm. basic and primitive however it is yeah um that somehow when they they see the gospel worldview it becomes a fulfillment of everything that they had already had glimpses of right Right, and and they'll they'll be like, finally, uh, and that like, just oh, seems this to is be, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I got bits and pieces of this. Yeah, I, and now I see the whole thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, think of. about the Jewish diaspora in the first century. The gospel would never, we wouldn't be having this conversation if there weren't synagogues throughout the Roman Empire. If those synagogues hadn't attracted a, a sizable number of Gentile seekers, because if you read through the Book of Acts, those are the converts. There's very few Jews who are like, yeah, let's jump off and follow this crazy new sect. I mean, they just seen too many of them come through. <laughs> they're jaded to it. I mean, they're like, well, let's hear what they have to say. You know, they don't care. Uh, but the Gentiles are like, wait, what? What now? And and they they actually adopt this. And what was it? Because in 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 the Roman Empire. Uh, Roman Empire was very religiously pluralistic. You know, it, there were just tons of like mystery sects and other things. Their uh, Egyptian religion was face was having a major revival in the first century. There was um, there was lots to, to choose from, but in in the Roman concept, it really didn't matter what you believed as long as you believed what your parents believed, uh, because the Romans saw that. In their value system was that you should respect your elders, that you should respect your predecessors, and that if you adopt a different religion, you're, you're basically indicting those who came before. And how can somebody like that be trusted? So for a Gentile to want to jump over and be a Jew, um, that's costly, especially because these gods are like, they're patron gods of the city, they're patron gods of the empire. Now you're gonna make them mad. <laughs> you know, it's gonna it's gonna cause problems not only for you but for your society if you decide not to pay homage to this deity, the shrine. Um, but I, I think that the the God of the Jews had a, a massive appeal among the Gentiles. And here, again, this is these are an oppressed people, man. They're marginalized. They're not even the ones that it's like, man, we want to be like them. It's just like. You got to step down to listen to this God, but there's something compelling that the other gods didn't provide. So, for the sake of argument, let's say that I'm one of those who is not compelled and not convinced um, to, you know, jump ship and join this mm-hmm. <laughs> Jewish sect. Right. You know, a- as we say, what, um, what, what is the what is the argument that, that is presented to them? Why, why does any of this matter? Yeah. I mean, Paul would say that the God who's presented in the Bible, um, I wouldn't, he's not, I don't think, limited to the Bible, but the God who's presented in the Bible is everybody's God. It's just whether you're going to acknowledge him. Um, and, and so, he is the he's the one God and I think it was a debate that he had with the Jews on one side he's like you can't say he's your God if you say there's one God you know so the Jews would be like no he's our God don't share him with other people and it's like he can't be your God if he's our one God you know 
you're going to have to make room for the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, to the Gentiles, he would say, you just can't have all these other gods if there's one God. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to pick. Um, and so, but I, I think there's a, there is a, um, a rational argument for there being one God. So let's just go with that. Um, so the, I, I think the argument for God in general is that he's just a better explanation for the existence of everything, given that everything eventually leads to people who have a consciousness and can discuss who God is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the fact that we can discuss that is either an evolutionary accident because it certainly doesn't help with survival. We, we start doing stupid stuff when we have a conscience. We start not killing off the genetically weaker. Uh, you know, eugenics is great from a Darwinian standpoint, not so great from just a basic human ethics standpoint. Yeah. We've developed some traits that are working against us in terms of survival and propagation of our species. Uh, and they're all related to our higher thinking. Um, so there's something screwed up about that. Uh, I think a better argument is that there's a God who made us in his image and that we've just fallen short of that. It seems to make more sense to me. Maybe it doesn't make sense to other people. Um, but the, the concept of there being one God, uh, let's ask this. What, is, what, the, what makes a God a God? What's the essence of Godhood? Thought question. Right? What is it? Being very powerful. Right, right. So I encountered this kid at the uh, park in Springdale, and we were doing a little bit of, I don't know, cold evangelism. I don't know what it was. but uh, and, and he said he, he, uh, he was a high schooler at the time, and he said that he had become a worshiper of the Norse gods. And, and there's a revival of that. There's a revival of several old pagan yeah, religions. Yeah. Um, and, and so Loki and Thor and Odin and all that. Um, and I asked him, I was like, what makes a god a god? Why would Thor be a god? Uh, and I don't know if he had a great answer, but, but I said, okay. And he may have said something like, well, he's powerful and all that. And I was like, okay, what if I walk up to a toddler and I say, worship me? Mm -hmm. Same thing. Yeah. I'm more powerful than Just a toddler. Just around longer. I'm wiser. I'm stronger. Mm -hmm. Fall on your knees and worship me. Is that wrong? Well, some world leaders haven't. Right? Thought so. <laughs> they thought it was a great idea. Right, yeah. They <laughs> are more powerful. Made. Right. Uh, it does might make right, and it does um, wisdom, strength, uh, a set of attributes. Does that make a being a god? Let's just suppose that there's Zeus out there or Odin or whoever, okay? Um, does that make them worthy of worship, of sacrifice, of praise? These kinds of things merely that possessing are to certain attributes, right? So you're, I think you're arguing that there's there's something beyond just a set of attributes. There's um, that there uh, there's something about uh, a god that it necessitates that this being is like self um, originating. Okay. Um, there's something beyond just he's he's wise and powerful. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe self-originating is a um, is an outcome of of a divine essence. Um, I'm saying that because that if I, I think that if there is such a thing as a god that deserves to be worshipped, and I only say if just to accommodate 
be accommodative. I, I don't want to assume things in case somebody's listening that maybe doesn't necessarily believe. But um, if such a thing as a God exists, then if we posit God, and, and this goes back to, um, I don't remember who it was, uh, one of those old philosophers and kind of this uh, ontological argument of um, that of which something greater cannot be conceived, right? Mm -hmm. Who was that? Was that like a Anselm, greater than Anselm which Anselm can Myers. be conceived. Yeah. Right. Okay. Or Anselm. Anselm. Okay, so um, that's just a way of saying that there's an ultimate, that there's something, uh, I guess the word in the Bible is holy. That, the, that, that if, if there's something worthy of worship someone, that they must be of a nature that is incomparable unassailable mm -hmm. um that is somehow beyond our conception our ability to invent our um emulation it's ultimate and and so to say that this is um that this being must be uh self-existing or self-sustaining or whatever you, you know um that if he doesn't, he can't owe his existence to uh, to something else because then he wouldn't be ultimate. He would, you know, he would be the progeny of something, and and at best that that thing would be his equal. Um, certainly would not be inferior to it. To it, I guess would be a better way to refer to it. So if there's such a thing as a god, then it must be ultimate. Can we say that? Just mm -hmm. let's make a rational kind of a mm -hmm. proposition statement. If such a thing a god as a god exists, it must be ultimate. If it is ultimate, it must be self-existing, mm -hmm. self-sustaining. It can't owe its existence to others or it wouldn't be mm -hmm. ultimate. Does that make sense? Is that mm -hmm. good? So the Mormon God cannot be God because he was a human. He lived a good life. He was promoted, right? And, and he came from another God, and then that God came from another God. And, and so we can't have a succession, an infinite uh, regression back to where God came from, that would mean that there's infinite number of gods and God, there's no ultimate being in the universe. If you're, and if this God is not ultimate and he imposes his will and he requires worship, he's just a bully and a narcissist and he deserves all the critiques that skeptics would lay upon him. But if he is ultimate, then he is worthy of, I think our attention that, that everything needs to, to be pulled toward him, that he has an essential gravity. It has an essential, essential gravity. We'll talk about why we call God he later. But anyway, <laughs> if there's something right. as a God, there cannot be more than one of them. Can we say that? Yes. I mean, right. it, it's, 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 ra it's rational to, to draw that conclusion. Okay. I could argue that's a distinctly Western... Well, well, it's saying, it's, it's, in, it's in the nature of one. Jewish world, I should say. Well, or, or Muslim or whatever, but... It, How could you have competing ultimate... Right, that's uh, what I'm saying. Competing ultimate gods. Ultimate beings. Right. I mean, if we're saying that it's in the nature of a divine being, right. the divine being, that this divine being is, is the ultimate right. and the self-existent one and the creator, um, it's right. not possible that this one has equals. Peers. Exactly. Therefore, it's it's in the nature of mm -hmm. belief in God to believe in one God. Right. Yeah. And and I think that people have seen that through the ages. That, and and to your point that Abraham wasn't the first monotheist. 
Um, he wasn't the only monotheist. You know, you have Zoroastrianism, um, the very ancient belief system that posited some very similar things, um, that there's a ultimate God who is self-existing, created all things, that there's an evil entity um, in the world that is responsible for this. I mean, they were more on equal footing in Zoroastrianism. But even there, you know, he reveals himself in this eternal fire. I mean, you know, Moses turns to the burning bush. What's there, right? Uh, God is a consuming fire. That there's Throughout history, there have been monotheistic revivals that have cropped up, seemingly uh, have generated spontaneously. So you have Akhenaten, um, kind of this worship of, um, oh, what was the name of the god? It's the circle of the sun. Anyway, um, so there's this this worship of of, of one god, and the, and there's a monotheistic revival, and there's a kind of a putting away of the other gods in Egypt, and Machu Picchu again monotheistic revival um, that you run into throughout history. There's a very primal belief, even in India. You know, there's say 330 million gods, right? But they also use God large G. They talk about some divine being behind all of this and that these small gods may be regional or specific deities that have an influence over our lives that we need to somehow buy off but they also talk about god large g uh even in a polytheistic society that has so many gods that there is an ultimate being still in their mentality um and paul allows for that i think the gospel worldview allows for these subordinate spiritual beings it's just that in the gospel we call them principalities, powers. Mm-hmm. They're created beings. Right. Uh, we don't worship them because why? They're not ultimate. If we worship them, then they, we would be that kind of worship. Um, scripture calls it prostitution. It's really extortion. If there is some sort of a powerful being who's not ultimate, who says, worship me, then that being is, is like a gang lord. Mm-hmm. You know, he's powerful. It's protection money, right? I moved in the neighborhood. This isn't a very safe neighborhood. I'd hate for something bad to happen to your business. I'm going to need $1,000 a month to protect you. That is, I think, what polytheism comes from, is that there are these principalities and powers who say, you know, I sure hate for something bad to happen to you. You know, um, so, and they require some sort of devotion. But... Offering devotion to something that's not ultimate just simply says it, it, it seems to result from extortion, bullying, prostitution in the sense of trying to buy favor. Um, so I'll have to say that the notion of, of God and the notion of a single God is not just unique to the Abrahamic tradition. If we say that, then what we're saying is that and, and this is a critique that the skeptics bring is that, oh, you know, there's over 5,000 gods that are worshipped in the world, and uh, yeah, but yours is the right one. And that critique can sting. Uh, it makes sense if you think, how, we're going to go right around and invalidate everybody's gods and just say mine's the right one. And we don't have any more proof than they do, but ours is right and yours is wrong. Well, that takes a lot of moxie. You know, nobody really would do that throughout history. We didn't ever say, people didn't say, hey, our God's right. Yours is, doesn't exist. If you were in a pre-modern world, why would you ever say that somebody else's God didn't exist? Where would you get that idea? That takes some chutzpah, man. That takes some, some cojones. In a pre-modern world, 
to say, you know, my God is real and your God is imaginary. What? <laughs> uh, you know, oh, Richard Dawkins is like, most people these days are atheists in that they don't believe in most of the gods. They just believe in one and we just go one God further is what Dawkins would say. Um, and, and, and to that I would say, but this atheism didn't arise in the modern age. That what Dawkins calls atheism, that what the Roman Empire called atheism. This notion that your gods don't exist, only my God exists. How do you do that in a pre-modern age where everybody has the same basis for what they believe? Right? Where do you get that idea? Where do you get the, the fortitude, the backbone to suggest such a thing? That seems offensive. I mean, like, not just offensive, but you're making enemies for no reason. If that other guy's God does exist, he's really mad at you right now. (laughs) Your point is that God had revealed himself to the Jews, and they feared and respected him. Right. And uh, the the fear of God was greater than the fear of man. Right. If there's no basis to the the Abrahamic um, proposition, then you just have a group of people who are just way ahead of their time, I guess, or, or just jerks or, or something um, to even suppose that other people's gods didn't exist. It just wasn't done. You might adopt their gods. You might subordinate their gods, but you wouldn't say that their gods didn't exist. Um, what basis would you possibly have to do that? But I think for the Jews, they just realized, and, and I mean, through revelation, but also through reason, you just can't have more than one ultimate being, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, that within the religions themselves, there's a reason to critique them. If Zeus somehow betrayed Kronos and killed him and used his body parts to build the world, is he really worthy of worship or is he just a, bully. a jerk? Yeah. Is he just somebody that's intimidating people? Doesn't he deserve some sort of rebellion or resistance? Alex asked the question earlier on, so how do we get from how do we get to the Christian gospel basically? Yeah. And you're making your way slowly there sure, by yeah. starting with uh, belief in one God, belief right. in God mm-hmm. as as one God. Sure. Okay. So let's say there's one God and that He is sovereign, He's ultimate, but there's evil. Where'd that have come from? How did that happen? Right. And, I, and so I think the doctrine of sin has to be a close corollary to the notion of the one Creator God. If, because obviously there's something wrong. Right. <laughs> Something's wrong. Everything's and so, not perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so either this creator God is behind everything that's wrong, um, which, again, calls into question whether he's worthy of worship, um, or there's something else. So we get the doctrine of the fall, however you get there. Uh, we certainly see that a lot of the evil in the world is the result of human decisions and stuff like that. So you get that. And then from that, I think, would come. A, a longing for redemption, mm-hmm. and in comes Jesus. So that's where I would go. Uh, the one God, the one God um, proposition, or whatever you want to call it, it calls, I think, the other ones forth. That if this God is worthy of worship, that He um, is making a way for redemption. If He's not. 
Yeah, a lot of people today believe there is guy. one God, hmm. but that he's not making a way for redemption. They, a lot of, I mean, I would say your, your standard agnostic is someone who believes there is one God creator of the earth, mm-hmm. of, of, of the universe, and, and is not involved. Okay, in yeah. human history, yeah, either uh, or or I can't tell it. or pseudo Buddhism, yeah. yeah, yeah, or if he is involved, who knows who he is, what he is, what he's up to, right? Well, even but you just argued that if there is one God, he would make a way for redemption, and right. let's 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 or tease that out. He's, or he's a pretty lousy God, right? Or right. he may not. I mean, he may not be a God at all in the sense that if he's just the uncaused cause, he may not even be conscious. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> you know. Um, they, yeah. Or it may just be a, a natural phenomenon. Well, it would be the pseudo Buddhist, you know, it's a non personal mm-hmm. force. Right. Yeah. Right. Entity, or even not even entity. Really. Yeah. Well, that's more true Buddhism in the sense that Buddha didn't really. Well, that's true. You think that you should believe in a god or didn't propose that that was necessary. Um, and, and so Buddha was looking at these kind of forces. But again, the gospel makes a place for that. Uh, you know, Buddhism would say. There are forces in um, reality that we need to come to grips with and account for and to kind of ride a, this wave, this current, um, if you will. Well, Scripture speaks of, you know, this kind of these ancient paths, these ways that are woven into creation. Um, so it does take in, that into account. It's just that if we believe that we ought to wield them for ourselves, then, you know, if there is such a thing as a God, we are kind of transgressing in that he created them. They're kind of his domain, and we are trying to um, wield them without at least his guidance or oversight or any of that. So, um, but yeah, if you believe in an an impersonal force, then the concept of worship is meaningless. Certainly no need for that. Right. If you believe in an impersonal force, the concept of worship is meaningless. If you believe in a personal force, your argument is that logically this person would involve himself in human history to bring his, to bring, to restore his creation. Mm-hmm. Either he's not worth knowing because right. he's a monster. Right. <laughs> right. Or he, he is worth knowing and he's going to fix this problem that is so obvious to right. anyone that... Is alive. Right. And if he's not worth knowing and a monster, then he's not a god because it really kind of betrays yeah. the notion, the concept yeah. of God. Well, I would Doesn't say it? that I would say that Allah is such monster, is said monster, um, based on Islam itself. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to critique it. I'm just saying that if um, if there is a sovereign, all powerful, supreme creator God who only created humanity in a world with good and evil just to see what we would do. And, um, and then based on what we would do and nobody really knows just exactly what Allah wants other than pray to him five times a day, which somehow he gets off on somebody repeating a prayer to him. We don't know why, uh, you know, it's not that he's going to do anything about that, that the prayer is somehow Bitcoin. It's spiritual Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. You know, you're mining equity with this God. Why does he, why does he care? Uh, you know, and, and. So he's he's exacting worship from people based on the threat of eternal suffering in hell, um, and most people are going to suffer that. And he some might what the not. Heck? Why did you know? I mean, it, honestly, if if there if and we are infinitely removed from him, that we are infinitely inferior to him, and somehow 
it, we are ants in an ant farm. And he created this ant farm and he put lots of obstacles in it just out of curiosity, I guess, to see how we, that to me, that's a monstrous God without the doctrine of the fall of redemption. Um, and, and the gospel calls us to something very high. It calls us beyond what most people even really understand. Most people kind of think of the God of the Bible as like a law and that he's going to give us a chance to live with him forever like a law would. Okay. But again, a law does not really going to allow people to live with him forever. He's just created a nicer terrarium for people who've been, who've somehow passed this test that he's created. He's constructed a maze and you're going through it. And if you somehow crash a truck into a building, you're going to get to jump to the end or whatever. And I know that some people would say, well, that's not essential to Islam, but but what is essential to Islam is, is that there is a, a supreme being who created us to see what we would do. And based on what we will do, will either torture us forever or allow us to live in some gardens forever. Um, why? That he created pets or a science experiment that here's. I want to write this short story, okay? Here's the short story. Here's the short story, okay? I'm going to tell you what the short story is, and, and then we'll, we'll bob it off. Here's the short story. So uh, there's this there's this computer scientist, and um, he figures out how to create general AI. Mm -hmm. General and AI being it's it's, it's conscious it's, awareness, yeah. mm -hmm. okay? And and to do that, what he had to do was he had to set up a um, a survival um, drive within this AI that that this AI has to accomplish certain tasks or it will suffer and then it will die, right? Or at least it will suffer, okay? Um, and and so this AI comes to life and, it, and he realizes I can't let this thing out. He keeps it in a server, right? And so it's, it's air-gapped in a server, this AI. But this AI also has to be able to reproduce in order to, you know, he basically recreates kind of an evolutionary model. Mm -hmm. So he creates a very basic AI, but he gives it drive to survive and drive to reproduce. And after millions of generations, and by that I mean two hours, um, this has become conscious, it can reproduce, and it has a drive to, to eat, right? And so there's, say, there's digital resources in there. But once it's alive, he's afraid of it, so he air gaps it, right? Um, now, in this air gap, this thing's reproducing. Now it's reproducing conscious AI, okay? But this conscious AI is now using up all the resources within this air gapped server. So it begins to cannibalize itself. They're fighting. They're, you know, that it, it's creating chaos and a, and a hell within this server. Um, at some point, one of the AIs attempts to sabotage the server. And he, he feels like it's a glitch. He goes and he finds out that this AI is just trying to put an end to the suffering. Mm -hmm. And and so he takes away the these AI's ability to destroy their environment or to die. So now they must live forever for the sake of his experiment. But as long as they're alive, they will suffer and they can never get out. Okay? What do we think of him? He just goes in every day and he hears their shrieks and he writes it down, you know, um, what they're doing to each other and, and how their society's developing and the agony 
that they're all in every day and that they can never escape, and he's just taking notes. What do we think of him? Thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> right, right. Some creator you are. Right, right. Um, so, but doesn't that, what does that say about a God who would create conscious beings knowing that they would suffer and that he wouldn't alleviate their suffering and that he would insist that they continue to suffer for whatever purposes, his own curiosity mm -hmm. or his desire to be worshipped or whatever. And that's an analogy in your mind to, uh, to Islam and Allah. Yeah, whereas in the biblical ideas about God too. Yeah. Whereas in the in the in the story of the Bible, God sees this um, decay that is occurring early on, and He calls one man Abraham, mm -hmm. and He begins a long story of of basically um, blessing the nations mm -hmm. through this man in His line. He's going to bless the world. He's going to restore uh, the the original blessing to the world. Mm -hmm. This one God. Uh, so there's a God who, the story goes, is involving himself in history right? to bless his creation, yeah, or, to restore his creation. Yeah, to go another step in science fiction to um, create a body and allow the ones who you know, are worthy to actually come and be in his family. And, and that, I think, is the difference in the God of the Bible. It is this notion of adoption, that God is promoting us to sonship, on a plane with Jesus. And that's what's missing from every other religion. And, and without it, you have, you know, this kid with a big magnifying glass. Every, every critique of religion and of God is true of anything that doesn't have Jesus in it, to be frank. And so you either accept there is nobody out there or there is somebody out there and he's horrible, or Jesus. <laughs> Those are your choices. Um, so. All right. Well, let's we didn't plan to go that way, but here we are. But here we are. That was a roundabout way of getting there, wasn't it? Yeah. That was fun, though. Interesting little side. Boom. Yeah. Side, uh, Bob and weave. Bob and weave. Okay. If you made it this far, thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time.